Welcome to another episode of No Challenges Remaining in the midst of the Asian swing. I am Ben Rothenberg, and joining me to the west, closer to Asia, I guess, is my dear friend Courtney Nguyen. Hi, Courtney. Closer to Asia, I guess. <laughs> Definitely closer to Asia. There you go. Yes. Yeah, the west coast of the U.S. is closer than the east coast. It's like the one time where we get some sort of bragging rights in terms of travel. Yeah, it's true. Like it's so much easier for us to get to Asia. And Australia. But yeah, And Australia. So whereas it's just such a pain for us to go everywhere else. But we'll take it. It's cool. I've never been to Asia. Or not. I, you know, it's not. I've been, been to Dubai for 20 hours once. Oh, right. Your epic layover. I layover there on the way back from Australia. But other than that, no, I've never been to like East Asia, which is my like biggest part of the world I want to go to and have not. But you're going. I am. And I'm very jealous. I have never been to mainland China and that's going to change. So I will be heading over to be in Shanghai, which is exciting. And at the same time, like a little stressful because like, obviously, I mean, it's China, but um, it does not sound like an easy place to be. Exactly. I mean, to to visit anyway. Exactly. And I think, I mean, if you're going to go to China, being having Shanghai as like your first, you know, port of call in China is pretty good. You know, I mean, that's about as easy as it's going to get just because of how westernized it is and, and open, which is kind of, I mean, I really, really wanted to go to Beijing and I want to go to Beijing one day. I, I just want to see the insanity of Beijing. Yeah. Like once I could probably or only handle it for like less than 24 hours before my body went into like physical shutdown, having being overwhelmed by everything. But yeah, I'm looking forward to it. So on this show, we're going to talk about the Asian swing as it goes, the Tokyo going into Beijing and Shanghai later on, and specific tournaments, what's happened there so far, and what we make of the Asian swing as a general part of the calendar. And then we're going to talk about the recent retirement of David Nalbandian, who just announced that on Tuesday. Or then we're going to take a few questions and take a number. So ready to roll, Courtney? Ready to rock. One Asian city, Courtney, I know you have been to is Tokyo, which is the opening major stop on the Asian swing for the women. Less major than maybe it has been in the past. Actually, the last year it's ever been there. Um, No Sharapova, no Serena. Azarenka was there only very briefly, which is not their fault, obviously. What did you make overall of the Tokyo tournament and how it shook out? Well, Petra won. Yeah. So that's good. I mean, I think that, and I say that not only because I enjoy watching her play well and I enjoy watching her do well, but I do believe that like tennis is better when Petra Kvitova is winning. Not to say that she needs to like win everything, but it's it's, it's on the whole, the WTA side. Better when she's relevant. Yeah, it, it, it rounds out when she's playing well and is relevant. So so I think that's that's a good thing to see and, and hopefully that she can build momentum through um, the fall season, which would be nice. But there were, I mean, there was a few like, you know, great takeaways from Tokyo. Obviously, Venus's run to the semis was, I don't know, Ben, did you see that sort of run coming? Coming? No, I actually really think this was one of the unlikeliest times for her to do well is uh, this Asian swing. But clearly she's dedicated if she went over there. Like, as everyone knows, Venus has not been a particularly full schedule in her career. But she acknowledged at the U.S. Open she's going to start entering more and more tournaments to account for the fact that she's not making it as far in tournaments as she's used to doing. And she needs more matches. And I thought that was a really sort of good self-aware admission that she had at the U.S. Open when she mentioned that. I think she's on the schedule for Osaka, too. Having her play an international in a foreign country is not the kind of thing you see too much. And I'm not sure if she's going over to play, uh, to defend her Luxembourg title, or I think I heard at some point early speculation from her team about maybe playing Moscow. I don't know if that's happening either, but it's good to see her playing more and, and 
health-wise, she looked great in Tokyo. I mean, that was the best I've seen her play, really, I think, since her comeback started anywhere. Yeah, I mean, it was it was great. I mean, I was trying to think whether or not her Tokyo run, how it compared to her run in Cincinnati last year. Yeah, or her run in Miami when she very first came back was also a good run. It was good, but it, even in that one, though, you could sense that she was still rusty, mm-hmm. even though her wins were really good in Miami. But I was just trying to compare, like, I, I don't know, part of it was I, I just couldn't remember how well she played in Cincy. But the Tokyo run was definitely, to me, like, at least viscerally, like, the most impressive. I just really didn't think that she could play nine grueling sets across 72 hours. Yeah, that's what it was. She was playing long matches and recovering pretty well. Mm-hmm. And playing big players and going toe to toe and serving well—that was the main thing. It wasn't this Venus getting by on this sort of piecemeal 63 mile per hour first serve where it's like she's just trying to kick it and not get any velocity on it. She was pounding them away. She hit one that was measured at 209 on the radar gun, 209 kilometers, which would have been the fastest ever on the official WTA metrics, except for they don't use the kind of system that converts or is applicable to their records. It's not IDS or something. I don't know. I mean the whole fastest serve statistics should always be taken with a grain of or a shaker of salt yeah total aside like going off of that i thought that venus's yeah she she hit that serve and i know for myself like i obviously like you know captured the the video and was ready to kind of do a post on it just kind of waiting for the official word as to whether or not it whether it was or was not you know the officially the fastest serve and the funniest thing to come out of it was just how I walked away from it feeling like, yeah, that the whole serving statistics of record, you know, with the WTA are a complete and utter farce. Yeah, no, they are. Like, they're so incredibly incomplete to the point where we just didn't even feel comfortable running a story on it because we were just like, seriously, we'd have to add so many caveats and explanations and it just becomes really confusing as to, you know, is this the fastest serve? And it makes tennis look like a joke, honestly, when you write that article. And it's like, this is like our Bush League thing where we don't even have the guns in the right places and the guns don't match up. And this came up in the ATP late late last year um, Mm -hmm. or sometime last year when Sam Groff was in a challenger in Korea and hit a serve that was measured like 160-something, 164 maybe, which was completely out of the ballpark of anything else that had ever been hit before. And it wound up counting. They didn't have reason to inauthenticate it, but most people you talk to don't believe this guy suddenly went to some small tournament had a serve that was nine miles per hour faster than anything else. Yeah, I mean, I think, that, I mean, which system would you prefer then? I mean, because I was coming at it thinking that I would actually prefer the Sam Groth method, method of too. like, look, that's how it was recorded. We have no reason to invalidate it. It's a very like, reliable company. We've approved yeah, the company. You know, so it's in. Or do you kind of like do the WTA style of like, well, we're only going to do IDS and on- and IDS only covers show courts at a select number of tournaments. So you're kind of like, well, if somebody goes and pops a ridiculously huge serve in, you know, Memphis, they popped a ridiculously huge serve in Memphis. It doesn't right. matter whether or not you sent your right people there or not. So that was super weird. And then the other thing that's weird about the serving stats, if you look at if you look them up on the WTA site, is that there's this weird caveat at the bottom that like if a player basically if a player shows up more than once in the top ten fastest serves, only their fastest serve is listed. That's also dumb. That makes no sense. Now, I, under- like, I understand you don't want to have, you know, Venus Williams or Serena Williams in there. 17 times in the top 20. I guess that, that makes the list a little bit useless, but have, like, How a, is that have a pull down. Well, because it doesn't show you who the top 10 fastest servers are. It's not a very long list if it's just Venus and Serena 20 times. But those are the fastest serves. If but, the fastest serve, if, but those are the fastest serves oh, that I are under, ever hit, I, right? I understand that. And I think that, and I yeah. think that data should be available. 
But I think there also can be the list that WTA has now, where it's like, here are the top ten, here are, here are the top ten fastest serves by a player, or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? The one they have now. Yeah, and I, I I just think that it's really incomplete. And also there's some other things like Brenda Schultz McCarthy is one of the players right. who's in there, and she hit one that was 130, I believe, but it was in qualifying. But there was a gun, but they don't count it because it was in qualifying. How is it less of a serve if it's in qualifying? I. I Explain me that. I don't care. And here's the other thing, too, which is, like, I don't know if you saw this. I'm sure that you did because I know you do your research and stuff. But, like, there was an – no, I wasn't being sarcastic. (laughs) There was, like, an part of what started this all with me and my editor about this story was that he kind of came back back to me and was like, what about this AP story from 2006 about that Brenda Schultz-McCarthy serve that was, like – the WTA – and there's a line in the AP write-up that says the WTA acknowledges that – this is like the fastest recorded serve or something like that. And it was, and I was just like, huh, well then how does that reconcile with everything? If the WTA is going on record right, as acknowledging certain serves as being like, yeah, that, I mean, if you want to say that's the fastest recordable serve, but it's not on our official list, then your official list is stupid. If you want to have asterisks, I understand that. Be like asterisk hit and qualifying. Okay. Whatever. Asterisk recorded with a different company's gun. Okay. Whatever. But yeah, make it all inclusive. The, cor- the sort of partialist they have now is pretty useless. I agree. Look at us agreeing. But yeah, Venus was hitting the serves really well, playing really well, beat Azarenka in straight sets. Azarenka obviously was not looking 100%. We got a question about Venus's going off of Venus's Tokyo run in general. No name Charlie Hennessy, who asks us, what does Venus have left in her at slam? So, Courtney, obviously Venus makes this great run to the Tokyo semis, loses there in a third set tiebreak, really could have won this tournament, came fairly close to looking like she could do that. Doesn't. But what does this mean for her at the big events? Can she still make an equivalent run at a Grand Slam? I mean, I think yes. I think that if you can do, if she can have a a slam where she's fit in Tokyo, like I said, like the thing that really blew me away was her ability to play three back-to-back-to-back, three set matches, not easy matches, really, really tough matches. I mean, one of them, I think against Genie lasted over three hours. Yeah. So these were not easy three set matches for her body to be able to do that over the course of three days. Of course, she. I mean, at a slam, she's playing every other day. And arguably, the draw is a lot softer at a slam in the first few rounds, you know, I mean, than it is at a, at a premier five. So, you know, in a lot of ways, it does give you a lot of confidence that she could do something, you know, at an Australian Open, at the US, at Wimbledon, Wimbledon in particular, you know, it's but so much of it, you know, is is just a crapshoot. I mean, then she, she goes and makes that semifinal run you know, comes within a few points of making the final in Tokyo and then comes to Beijing and loses in her opening re- round match easily to, to Sabina Lisicki, who less played remarkably hour. well. Yeah. But yeah, less than an hour and, and really looked like physically she was she was wiped from that week in Tokyo. So in that situation, you're talking about, OK, these are a slams two weeks. This was effectively two weeks, you know, Tokyo and the beginning of Beijing. And, and she kind of tapped out in the second week. So it's just really hard. I mean, it, it, it's she's a player that I don't know you can really bank on anymore, but you can just kind of track and follow and hope that she's able to find those weeks where she plays you know vintage tennis yeah i think that really the tokyo week if nothing else reminds us that you can't count her out i mean i wasn't really giving her much chance of beating azarenka or even making that a particularly close match when they drew each other and granted a lot of that was azarenka really not looking 100 percent. what made that match uh, winnable for venus i think but venus is a dangerous floater and she's never someone who can be is, is she's i think she's the least predictable player in the women's game right now it might be fair to say, just because there's so many X factors with her and her upside if everything is firing is so high, but the downside of if everything's going badly for her is really low. I mean, she can beat anybody and lose to anybody. 
which makes her fun. Yeah, I mean, it it makes her the queen of the WTA in a lot of ways. Yeah, she's, she's... You know, I mean, like, to the extent that, you know, we've talked about this a gazillion times about, like, one of the things that we really do like about the WTA is how unpredictable it is. And so, yeah, you get to add Venus to that stable of players who you, you regardless of who they draw in, in round one, you tune in because you don't know what you're going to see. And sometimes with Venus, it's a complete flop. Like, they took, like, it the Asian thing. But other times... I mean, it was really vintage stuff in Tokyo. The match she had against Genie was really good. Mm-hmm. The match she had against Halep, that was a really good match she played against Simona Halep. Yep. And for her to come back and beat Halep, who was playing really well, I thought was very impressive. And yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing what the near and distant future have in hold for her. Because at during times this summer, it was looking pretty pretty grim for Venus. Yeah. Well, and I think that, you know, especially the way that she's rejiggered her schedule, her fall schedule, and what you said about what she said at the US Open about needing to play more tournaments because she's losing earlier. Like, I do kind of like that she's kind of pushed all her chips into the center of the table. Yeah. That she isn't just treading water and being like, oh, it'll come, it'll come. But actually, like, no, I really have to, like, see if I can do this. Yeah. And I only know if I can do this if I go all in. So, so that's encouraging to see. I like it. First eyebrow raising win that Venus had in Tokyo was in the second round against top seed Victoria Azarenka, the WTA number two, and she beat her in straights. Azarenka was saying that she'd been sick and hadn't been ill practice for a few days, and so it was seemingly understandable. Then Azarenka goes over to Beijing, loses first round to Andrea Pekovic in a somewhat messy match on her end, or just not a typical performance from her. And suddenly Azarenka finds herself in a three-match losing streak dating back to the U.S. Open final. And really not playing very well. Courtney, do you think this is a just a blip or cause for real concern for the WTA number two as she heads into Istanbul, which I believe is her only tournament left on this calendar? Correct. Yeah, she's she's not going to play any any European tournaments. So. Defending Linz. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't think that it's cause for concern. I think that I've definitely been kind of almost like fool me once, you know, okay, fool me twice. Well, I'm a dork and an idiot. That's my version of the saying. That's the saying, yeah. Yeah, it's a saying. I've seen kind of Vika have these little weird stretches where she she just kind of comes out flat and is not exactly playing confidence, inspiring tennis. And then she's able to turn it around and, and play her best when she needs to. Just normally she wins those matches, so we don't notice as much. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. But even, you know, like through the, the US Open series, I her form, her run of form didn't really impress me. And then she went and beat Serena in Cincinnati. And I re- I was genuinely shocked. I, I She was double faulting all over the place. She was just not looking very sharp. And yet somehow against Serena, she was able to like bring bring it. I mean, this is a woman who lost to Sam Stozer in a, in a final of a tournament. So, you know. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> shade. Yeah, so I don't know if it's really time to panic. I think that there's also, I, she's a type of player that I can see kind of mentally, not necessarily intentionally, but mentally shutting it down right now. Just not really into it. She can't, I mean, there. what is there to play for, for her? Nothing. Yeah, no, totally agree. She's sort of in a transitional phase of her career where she's becoming a player who can should really be focused on the slams and bolstering her legacy and, you know, in a bit of numbers racking up mode and clearly she thought she'd win the u.s open she came close she came within a set of it um and she sort of peaked for that and coming back off that high is tough i mean there's like she was defending champion in beijing but still she knows it's just beijing if she wins beijing it doesn't prove anything even if she beats serena she's already beaten serena in a small tournament and so she's got to just sort of refine her motivation i totally expect her to be back on track for Australia. Um, exactly. We'll see. We'll see. She never won Istanbul or the year-end championship, so I think that maybe she'll get up for that. But in the meantime, she's 
entering a phase of her career where she's just got to she's learned she's becoming more focused on the uh, big prizes. And you saw with Serena, I mean Serena for a long time was a disaster at smaller tournaments and still good at the big ones. So maybe that's sort of the model Vika is following right now. Yeah, I mean, I don't really have a problem if she, if she if she kind of begins to take that tack. I mean, I don't think that the WTA is going to love it. You know, we've seen it with with Sharapova, we've seen it with Serena that there is merit in kind of trying to do what you can to peak for the slams and not really be so concerned about chasing points on a week to week basis. Mm-hmm. That said, both Sharapova and Serena had their best years when they were winning the smaller tournaments. Yeah, sure. You know, when when they were actually going in week in and week out and just beating everybody and really kind of taking pleasure in that. But sometimes maybe you need to go away from that to kind of get the hunger for it again. Yeah, that's probably maybe, true. You know, because I, th- I feel like Vika for a while there really did kind of have that like, oh, yeah, like sh- when she wins, nobody talks about it. But when she loses, it's like a big deal. So so maybe she kind of also feels she was feeling that way as well. One of the big movers in Tokyo who really reaffirmed her presence as a relevant player on the upper or upper middle echelons of the WTA was Canada's Jeannie Bouchard, noted Justin Bieber fan, who made the quarters in Tokyo, beating Elena Yankovic, among others, and playing Venus in a tough three-set match. Uh, With that run, Bouchard becomes the highest-ranked teenager on the tour, passing players like Laura Robinson, most notably, and also fending off Madison Keys, who also had a pretty good Tokyo run and was in the running to get that title as well for a while there. Courtney, obviously, I know you know Jeannie well. You, you just did a recent great interview with her on Beyond the Baseline. What do you make of Jeannie's run and sort of her place in this new generation next on the WTA? I mean, in the beginning of the year, if like we were to all place bets, like who would have actually placed a bet that Jeannie would be the number one ranked teenager? Jeannie had a Laura striking. Yeah. I mean, at the end of 2013, which she's really in a pretty good position to get there. Yeah. To, to finish the season that way. Oh, yeah. Laura didn't have a great Asia. I mean, Madison has a pretty good shot of, of uh, well, not a pretty good shot, but a shot of, of making up some ground in um, Beijing. But yeah, I mean, it's entirely possible that Jeannie could be the highest ranked team. Let's remember this time last year, Jeannie was in the Gangnam Style video and during the Asian swing. And I think she was just mostly seen as, oh, Laura's friend. Mm-hmm. Laura Robson, who made the fourth round of the US Open and that other girl who we don't really know that well. It's probably fair to say that's how most tennis fans react yeah. to that. And now, just a year removed, we talked about this a little bit last show when we were talking about the juniors and the transition. Just last year, uh, Jeannie was winning, was playing in a winning junior Grand Slams. And so for her to make this make a transition from that level to the pro level is uh, impressive, impressively seamless. Yeah, yeah. And again, like going back to our discussion last week about, you know, just kind of the need in my opinion, I suppose, of, of, of players, young players to stay in juniors and to, you know, play out their kind of junior careers as opposed to turning pro at like 14, 15, 16 and trying to, you know, make it on the senior tour when maybe it's a little too early. I mean, I think that the genius of this point is, is kind of the poster child for for kind of sticking it out and, and allowing yourself to mature. And so that you are a better competitor when you're on the senior tour. And, and she's just her, you look at her results over the year and, and there's not anything that's, you know, really stood out. You know, I mean, she does. She didn't have like the crazy deep runs at the slams that Sloan had. She yep. didn't. She wasn't like really the giant killer that Laura's kind of built herself to be. She wasn't like the prodigy, the you know that Madison was. She just kind of kept plugging along. Can I use an adjective? Sure. I think it's Mikhail-esque. Mm, mm, mm. <laughs> 
Yeah, okay. I think it is. I think it's really not flashy. There's no big headline result, except for maybe beating Ivanovich on center court Wimbledon. But that happened, as you'll remember, during Black Wednesday and got totally overshadowed. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think it's been... And that's not to say that she's going to ha- turn into Mikhail and have a big letdown soon. But I'm saying her progress has been steady, unspectacular, but impressively workmanlike, a.k.a. Mikhail-esque. Yeah. Well, yeah, I guess that's right. And, and you know, and, and to be fair, I mean, you know, Mikhail had those two wins over Wozniacki back in the day. And, 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 and yeah. And Kvitova nowadays, like now within the last like month, like Jeannie's kind of beginning to put or the last couple of months, Jeannie's been able to start putting together little strong runs where you can kind of consider her a genuine danger if she's in your if she's in an early seat, you know, a seeds early round portion of the draw. That was a a great competitor, too. Yeah, she is. She's a great competitor. So she's not somebody that anybody wants to play right now. And I don't think that other players would have said that six months ago. So she's really built herself into being a player to be reckoned with. So I'm excited for that. Speaking of the WTA Young Guns, we got a question about the sort of Genie demographic. Genie beat Sloan in Tokyo and then just lost to her in rematch in Beijing. We got a question about that sort of under 21 set from Joe Kelly, who asks us, should the ATP and WTA or ITF, institute a 21 and under tournament. Give post-juniors the next, quote-unquote, a chance to shine. Courtney, what do you make of that idea? I think it's a great idea. You know, we see that on the challenger circuit, on the ATP, just kind of, I mean, obviously it's not limited by age, but at least you give like the second tier players, you know, an opportunity to play for something at the end of the season. Yeah, the challenger tour finals you're talking about. Yeah, the challenger tour finals. So that's pretty nice. But we are going to see something like this, like in terms of a junior showcase when the WTA championships move to Singapore. So one of the ideas or one of the things that, that I think the WTA is doing, or at least they want to do, is basically to fly out kind of top juniors to play kind of a, a a future stars i think tournament or exhibition or something like that to kind of put that give them the stage um and to kind of showcase some of the the future talent on the tour which i think is a great idea it would be a better idea if it was actually like not an exo match but like actually like some sort of smaller round robin sort of tournament to give it more kind of a competitive feel yeah but i think that's great now obviously that if if that is as i understand it which is i think going to be just a juniors thing that still doesn't really address the question right which is the young under guns 21s, like yeah. yeah under 21s which is you know i think that uh steve tigner and matt cronin were joking about it this week sloan and genie were set to play in beijing that it was the well we're not like besties bowl <laughs> Which we all kind of, I was like, where do I sign up for this? Um, I want to go to this now. How much of a bummer was it that neither Sloan Genie match was streamed? Such a bummer. Such a bummer. Two three set matches. Like, the and first crazy one was, ones. Second, the second one was trading breadsticks. Looked awesome. Yeah. The first, yeah. the second one was trading breadsticks. The first one was like Genie raced to a 5-0 lead before dropping seven straight games and then came back and win the second set and then like won the third. It was weird. So yeah, it, I can't believe that that stuff wasn't streamed or on a TV court. Frustrating. Very. But yeah, I mean, I'm totally down. I totally agree. I would love to see more of these kind of ideas. You, I don't think you can give it ranking points to the problem. I don't think you can have age limits for ranking sanctioned That's tournaments. Fair. I think that would draw complaints from lovable old farts. Like, you know, I don't know, someone who's 28 or someone complaining they can't get into this tournament would have ranking points. I do think it'd be a great replacement for the Sophia event, which I think is weird and pointless. The sort of consolation bowl they have going on there in Sophia and previously Bali, the tournament of champions, quote unquote, having it be a next, having it be a young gun thing and maybe throwing in some other events there and have it be like a WTA sanctioned tennis carnival of sorts. (laughs) That was, that was not for ranking points, but was official and did get big names and had, you know, was mandatory. 
would be would be nice for them, and I, I think that would be a, a good thing. Get the under twenty ones because we love these matches. These you know, Sloane talked about it herself. We people get excited for the Sloane versus Puig, the Sloane versus Genie, Genie versus Puig, Genie versus Laura, Laura versus Sloane. One of them against a Pliskova or against a Ladenovich um, or um, against Annika Beck or whoever else was in their demographic. You know, how come Alina Svitolina doesn't get thrown into that mix? She is super forgotten. She super is. forgotten. I mean, yeah. she's top forty. I mean, at least as of last week, she was top forty. Yeah, but she's she's never had a big match against a big player. Exactly. Think. She kind of just toils away and, and like gets her points in the Baku, the lower she levels. Baku. Yeah. I think there's a rule. If you win Baku, we like don't talk about you for the next six months. <laughs> I think it's a pretty damn good rule. <laughs> I think it's a pretty workable rule. I would agree. Yeah, I, I yeah, but I mean that's what I'm saying. Yeah, I think that'd be a cool idea, but you couldn't assign ranking points to it. But I'd still love to see it in ATP too. I mean, go out there, have some more Dimitrov Tomic matches, some Dimitrov Harrison, Dimitrov Kula, Kyrios versus Kokanakis. Throw everybody in there. I think it's a great promoter's thing and I think agents would love it. The showcase for young talents like who are becoming something on the junior tour. I think it has a lot of upside. And there's another free idea we're throwing out there for someone to take and run with, please. Courtesy of Joe Kelly. Yeah, the question is whether or not you could get TV rights and people to come watch. I just think it's a cooler kind of EXO. It's, it's not a star-based EXO, but if you're going to have events in the off-season, especially if it's somewhere one of these juniors is from, like if you're playing it in like Britain, for example, and wanted yeah, to put say, Laura yeah. and Heather in this event and invite the other top juniors, they would definitely put on some cable sports channel. They seem to have a lot of those in England now. BT Sport. Yeah, do it up and just make it a thing. And I think that it would really work rather than having the current concept of like, oh, an XO is just, I don't know, go to Bratislava and have one Wozniacki Chibulkova match and call it a day. I mean, why not have something that had a little bit more of a gimmick to it? I think it'd be cool. And uh, do other stuff, too. Have, like, a, a doubles XO or have a little tournament of just tiebreaks XO where you invite, like, 32 players and have them all play sudden death tiebreaks against each other. I don't know. There's just ways to make the sport. You're just giving away ideas, man. I really am. Just spewing out here. <laughs> if, if, you know, a tournament wants to do that, that'd be awesome. More people should have the enterprise and fun novelty that the Party Rock Open gives us all. Oh, wow. Really throwing out some love to the Party Rock. I am. I, I appreciate what they stand for. So, Courtney, you we mentioned at the beginning of the show, you were heading over to the Chinese tournaments for the first time ever. Just in general, what do you make of the Asian swing as a part of the year? Obviously, you've been everywhere else on the tour pretty much in terms of the calendar, uh, but not this part. I guess, why is that? And uh, what should people make of this part of the calendar? Players, fans media, etc. I mean, personally, I love the Asian swing primarily because I'm a night owl. And so the whole time difference absolutely works for me. Okay. Like I don't mind, you know, kind of having my computer going until three, four or five o'clock in the morning, like watching matches. So that's good. It's generally, you know, you get some pretty good fields and, you know, because of, of how much the tours want to push these tournaments and making you know, quite a few of them mandatory or giving a lot of incentives for players to go. Yeah, I guess I guess time-wise, I'm just thinking, Asia for you is like Australia is for me. Because I guess we're bo- yeah. they're both sort of spaced out evenly. From, right. Anyway, yeah. And I like Australia for the same reason. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's just kind of nice. And it's, you know, I can actually, like, enjoy it as opposed to, like be watching a stream like while I'm working which is what I have to do for like Europe which is kind of a bummer so in that way there's kind of a weird purity about the Asian slash European swing of, of the fall in terms of like you know like in every other section of the season we're constantly looking towards the slams 
So whatever is happening in that moment, you're still looking at it in the context of the next upcoming slam. That's, so I pretty much totally agree with that. Maybe the exception of Indian Wells, Miami a little bit. Right. Indian Wells, Miami, totally different. I totally agree with that. But yeah, and I mean, that whole stretch too. I mean, Rotterdam, right. Dubai, just that post Australian Open hardcourt stretch. It's kind of invisible to me yeah. in a lot of ways until it gets to the States. And that's really just crappy American thing, I guess. No, it's fine. It, I mean, it makes sense. You can't, tennis can't be peaking always. Right. You must have valleys in order to have peaks. Mm-hmm. You know, with the Asian side, the, Asi- the Asian and European swing, it just kind of feels like for the most part, except for the, the year in championships and the races to get to the year in championships, like they're just out there playing. And so in a lot of ways, it's kind of enjoyable as a spectator because you can just like watch tennis and not have to think about really the implications of what's happening in front of you. So I personally enjoy that. As a fan, there is a sort of nice detached purity to it. I mean, players are just playing for points and money, essentially, and I guess titles, theoretically, to get that far in a tournament. But yeah, there's not much, nothing, oh, what does this mean? I mean, if you went into right. that too much last year, you'd be like, oh, what does it mean that Nadia Petrova won Tokyo in 2012? <laughs> uh, a year later, I can tell you, it meant pretty much nothing to mm-hmm. the big picture of 2013. Granted, she had some injuries, whatever. But I mean, yeah, it doesn't flow into the, uh, an important event quite the same way as anything during the rest of the year. I'll say from a media point of view, though, everything during this part of the year, result-wise, feels largely irrelevant. I mean, it's just hard to get people excited about tennis who are like in a general sports audience now. This is not our time of year. We talked about this before, tennis calendar, but right now, the baseball playoffs, which have started, NFL is in full swing, hockey started on Tuesday night, and NBA is just around the corner, college football as well. Not to mention whatever nonsense soccer-wise is probably going on in Europe as well right now. Yeah, it's just too much, and this is not tennis's time to take anywhere near center stage or even a peripheral stage. So on that side, it's, a, it's definitely a down-cycle time in the sport, in sports biorhythms. And uh, I think that it sort of naturally has to shrink a little bit and just not feel like as big a deal. Yeah, I mean, it, it's only, I mean, because even when we talk about the significance of what happens during this part of the season, like it doesn't even carry forward really to the next season. No. So it's not even like we can be looking at this and being like, oh, who's playing well and that should give them momentum going into the off season, and then they'll come out and they'll play great in January and make a deep run at the Aussie. Like you really can't even say that. I mean, like the two results that I, that seem that seem to stick out to me from the fall season of the last few years was like, remember when Yelena Yankovic clinched the year in number one during the fall swing mm-hmm. <laughs> back in 2008. And then Caroline did the exact same thing, I think in Beijing or one of the Asian tournaments, like whatever in 2009, 2010 or, or no, it would be 2010. Yeah. I guess, you know, I mean, it just doesn't really, you know, Petra had that crazy run through the fall swing and then just completely fell away last year. So, you know, can, can we really even bank on what's happening as being some sort of, you know, fortune teller for the next year. For some reason, I always think also on the sort of year and the year end championships front, maybe just because of the schedule and I guess Bercy where it's positioned, but I always feel like the race to the championships is more intense on the men's side and the women's. Do you feel that way? I feel like yeah, it's, but that's it's more because intention they have, anyway. But that's because they also have an extra month that's true. of tournaments. And they so have two like, master's events after US Open. Right. Yeah. You know, so and whereas. 500s. Yeah, like, I mean, Lee Na clinched her spot, right? So that would be number five. So there's only three spots. Well, arguably, there's three spots in play, although depending on what, you know, Bartoli and Sharapova and all that. But as of this point, whereas like on the men's side, I don't even think David Ferrer has clinched a spot in the World Tour or Championships. Yeah, I'm not sure. 
I, I think that it's still only the, the top three guys. So there is there's so many points in play for the guys between the, the U.S. Open and the World Tour Finals that there's a lot that can still be flipped around and a lot of shuffling that can happen. And so that's part of it. And then also, I think that probably, I mean, the guys get a little bit more attention because a lot of the guys who are in those seven through 12 spots are arguably kind of more interesting as a group than the women who are in the seven through 12 spots. It definitely can shake out that way, sure. Yeah, so I mean, when you're starting to wonder, is Roberta Vinci going to get the eighth spot in Istanbul? Oh boy. We love you, Roberta. We do. Your little slap chest snap celebration, adore it. <laughs> but yeah, I'm not really going to be like sitting down with my pen and paper and an abacus. I'm not looking forward to seeing you play Serena. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I'm not going to be like calculating out whether or not like you're going to get in or not, because I just don't really think in the big scheme of things it matters. Breaking news. According to my sources, just this week, David Ferrer has clinched a spot in London. I don't think they've even announced it yet. This is some breaking NCR exclusive. David Ferrer will be in London. Awesome. So there you go. Can't wait to see him play the big four. <laughs> One guy who had one of his biggest career results in Asia just announced his retirement this week, Tavi Nabandian, who maybe peaked with a win at the tour championships when they were held in Shanghai, announced uh, his retirement this week. He is, how old is he? 31. 31 years old and had a long career with a lot of ups and downs. Courtney, what will you remember most about Tavi Nabandian? Ugh, I mean... You'll just remember kind of two sides of the coin, you know, because it's it's completely disingenuous to say, oh, I'm totally going to only remember his beautiful backhand, his ability to push the top guys, his weird, like, not ownership because he had a losing record against him, but kind of ponage of Federer, which was like super weird. His quest for Davis Cup and it's kind of futile attempts, but it was kind of endearing how badly he wanted it. Like, those are kind of all the positives. But the guy kind of was a bit of a jerk. Yeah, I think that's. I think it's uh, fair to say without a modifier. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he's a, he was a jerk. I mean, feel free to Google David Nalbandian prickly, like seriously, because <laughs> I did it today. Google it and just see how many hits you get of like those three words coming within ten words of each other. <laughs> Sounds like a great like cocktail for when you open like a ten, like a tennis theme bar. Oh, I'll, I'll have the Nalbandian prickly, please. Oh, totally. It's tasty. Yeah. It's tasty. And you're going to go throw up. And you might bleed a little from the leg. Yeah. Blood is involved. Yeah. Blood is involved. It basically involves like a shot of vodka and then smash the glass to your face. <laughs> <laughs> Rough. Yeah. That is. And then you spill water on somebody. Exactly. The, bar- the bartender. But yeah, so it's hard to ignore all of the other stuff. You know, I mean, the guy was, I mean, from the press side, he was, he was a jerk. I mean, he was not, it was never fun to be in a enclosed area with him to talk to him after a match, win or lose. He was obviously the incident at Queens is really going to be, I think what a lot of people are going to remember now we buy. And that was his last impression he left. Yeah. Yeah. I wrote, I wrote that um, in my kind of career retrospective thing today on on SI that it's just the timing of his um, retirement is just such a bummer because that is going to be the last thing that we remember of him is not just I mean the funny thing about the incident at Queens is that that wasn't even like the most like the only shocking off you know incident of his that year yeah you know I mean like it overshadowed him throwing water on an Australian Open official like at the beginning of the season like that's a pretty bad bad go 
right. Nalby. And it's just, you know, in the in the big scheme of things, it's, it is kind of hard to forgive a guy for all that just because his backhand was like butter. I think the Queen's Club incident was especially rating for me because of how he handled it afterwards. If he had exactly. been like immediately contrite and been like, I'm sorry, I got angry. I wasn't thinking, didn't realize how close he was to that thing. Apologize. It could have all been sort of washed away. But then he goes in the trophy ceremony why they let him speak at the trophy ceremony is kind of beyond me. But he goes and starts ranting about how the ATP has required tournaments or something. Be like, no, 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 listen, listen. I'm the victim here because the ATP is like so mean to me, you guys. Like, shut up. No one cares. Like, there's an old bleeding man sitting on the corner. Yeah, it, it was strange. And just other than that, I do think that tennis-wise, he has to be seen as something of a, a frustrating case, a bit tomicky in terms of his unfulfilled potential. I mean, he always had the game, had the forehand, backhand, the ground strokes were beautiful, and he had runs where he put it all together and made sweet music on the court at these indoor tournaments in Europe and Asia, I guess, as well, where he beat Djokovic, Nadal, and Federer back-to-back-to-back-to-back to win one of them, Madrid, and then Tokyo, oh, sorry, and then Paris, Paris. as well, back-to-back. So that was huge when he did that, but he also just never seemed like he could string it together, and some of it was injury, but a lot of it was just clear lack of fitness and lack of focus, I guess. And it's it's frustrating when you're dealing with a guy who clearly went through some ebbs and flows on that in terms of ranking him as, I'll get to this a little bit later, in terms of the best and never win a slam discussion. When you compare it to somebody like Dementia, who always had such constant work ethic and clearly wanted it so badly, too badly. I mean, Nabandian, it's a bit of a flip on the other side where... That wasn't always the case with him, I don't think. I see what you're saying, and I definitely can't disavow any of that or really, truly disagree with it. But I think in my heart of hearts, I do think that like it's a little bit harsh on the Nalbandian legacy. Oh, it's definitely harsh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't, I would never kind of say, I mean, even though I would say, yeah, there is kind of a part of me that thinks, you know, unfulfilled potential, but I do kind of put him in the same range in terms of unfulfilled potential as I would put a Safin, not Atomic. So in other words, like, Oh, okay. he, he reached much higher highs than Tomic has shown. Much anything. higher highs. And sure. obviously he didn't win a slam, but, you know, to finish five straight years, you know, inside the top 10 to, you know, get to a career high of three, to get the wins that he was able to get and to really earn the respect in the locker room, you know, off court, he could be whatever he was, but, but everybody knew. You're right. Safin's definitely a better allegory. Yeah. So I always kind of think he was a bit more of a Safin who's just like, you were so infuriating because he was so good, like so good. And he just could not get out of his own way. And with Safin, it was more of a mental thing. And yeah, maybe some distraction, but it was a bit more just like he couldn't just keep his head on straight. And with Nalby, it was unfortunately kind of a like, he was so talented. It was kind of the curse of the talented, right? You're so talented and it comes so easily that you don't put in that extra 5-10% effort that would really, you know, bring yourself to the next level. That's a crutch. Yeah, you know, like, you know, whether he was like, he wasn't El Gordo, that wasn't his, that's another argentine guy that's his nickname but like fat dave i used to call him fat dave just it's simple it's effective it's mean but i mean those shirts did not hide that fact that he was not the fittest dude he was a little bit busty Mm -hmm. yeah no these are these are true things and i do think obviously he was a lot of fun to watch he had his chances to win slams the draw where he made the final and that's kind of the, the weird thing that how these tennis obituaries get written almost every single one of them led with the o2 wimbledon final which I don't really think of first when I think of him at all, because that was such a fluke run through a really decimated draw at that tournament. There was some crazy stat, like, um, at the O2 Wimbledon, only, like, two of the top 17 seeds made the, the fourth round or something. Something Jesus. ridiculous. I mean, look, I mean, I should pull it up. 2002 Wimbledon, all but two of the top 17 seeds were knocked out in or before the third round. 
which is insane. Just uh, number one, Hewitt, and number four, Henman, made it past into the second week of the top 17. So now Bandian sort of cockroached his way through that as the number 28 seed made the final. He played number 22, Lepenti, in the quarters, and number 27, Melise, in the semis. I mean, like, just the concept of that is completely foreign to so many of us who just have become accustomed to the way the men's game currently is. That's so not ATP current, yeah. No, that's like It wasn't like even nuts. like he beat anybody. He didn't beat any seeds before that either. He played no. uh, his full draw, if anyone cares, was someone named David Sanchez in the first round, Paul-Henri Mathieu in the second, George Bastel in the third, and Wayne Arthurs in the fourth. So, I mean, yeah, that was the shot. So I don't think of now, I don't think of Wimbledon final as being his crowning achievement. I really think of it more as winning Shanghai, uh, that yeah. year thing where he beat Federer in the final, back when Federer had a really long streak of consecutive finals won. 24, I believe. Yeah, uh, that was a big Federer streak that he broke. So that's 35, what I think 35 match win streak, too, going into that final for Federer. There you go. And now Bandian wasn't even supposed to be there. He that was, was an alternate, kind of, yeah. Yeah, that was what kind of cracked me up, was just like, it was one of those, like, I wasn't even supposed to be here today, like, <laughs> you know, lines from Clerks. Like, he wasn't even supposed to be there. He subbed in for Roddick, who was out. Um, who had to pull out with a back injury and then comes back from two sets to love down to Federer in the final to win and snap all of these streaks that Fed had and hand him just his fourth loss that that season. Like that's the Nalbandian that I remember or the Nalbandian of, of Madrid and Paris, you know, that guy. Because when, uh, when he I, peaked, he was great. And mm-hmm. I remember him winning, uh, playing in the Washington tournament in 2010. And I saw him absolutely destroy, I want to say, Vavrinka in the first round. Vavrinka was playing well. He beat him like 2-2. Two and two. And I looked at the draw, and I was like, yeah, Nalbandian's probably going to win this tournament. And he did. I mean, he beat Simone and Roddick and uh, I think Baghdadis in the final and just killed all of them. But it was, again, a momentary flash in the pan that didn't amount to much. And I think leaves me ultimately underwhelmed in regard to his legacy. Hmm. But I'm being harsh. But that's also because, you know, I take the totality of all of the experiences with him. And maybe I'm harsher on his tennis than I would be if he was a super nice guy. Right. If he was like a, you know, a Del Potro or a Petra. Sure. Yeah. You know, I mean, because I thought about that a little bit today when I was kind of thinking about who I would kind of lump him in to with as in terms of an underachiever. And I was thinking about kind of him compared to kind of the Del Petra combination. And I was just like, that's just too hard because like the thing about Del Potro and Petra is that people like them. They're super endearing. Like they love them. Like, you know, and like little puppies, like little ginormous puppies. With Nalbanin, he's just he's just really hard to kind of like except for his tennis. Like I would go he's a guy that I would go out of my way to watch play the sport of tennis yeah. on any given day. That's that's a huge compliment. I mean if we're just mm-hmm. praising that side of him, that's that's a lot. I mean a lot of people don't he has, in style points, what everything, what a lot of players have in all other categories combined. Mm-hmm. So you can hang your hat on that, Dave, as you hang it up for good. Bye, con Dios. Indeed. One of the conversations that came up with Nalbandian retiring is the whole topic of best to never win a Grand Slam debate, which he has been involved in quite a bit for quite a few years now, along with other players. Andy Murray was front and center in this debate until he did win a Grand Slam. In 2012, also in there are players like Elena Dementieva, Yelena Yankovic, I think, deserves some consideration in there. Dinara Safina in there, if you want her as well, too. Miloslav Machir, Tommy Haas. Davidenko. Davidenko, Marcelo Rios. So, Courtney, who do you think is the best player never to have won a Grand Slam title? Uh, 
these debates, these of all time debates. This is a tough one too, because you kind of have to like do your research a little for this one and like look up and know, okay, what was Rios' stat line compared to Yankovic and all these weird sort of, you know, things there. Because those are both, for example, slamless number ones. Right. Very, very true. I mean, for me, and and maybe it's, it's still just because it's so visceral, it's still Nalbandian to me. Because even when, before Andy Murray won the U.S. Open last year. Now, Bandian was still ahead of him in my book in terms of really the best player to not win a slam. Yeah, no doubt about it. That I disagree with. I think in the time, I guess last summer, when Murray had won, had made a fourth Grand Slam final at Wimbledon and had won the Olympic gold, he was undoubtedly the best player to never win a slam in my book, without a doubt. Because he yeah. won like seven or eight Masters titles as well. He was so he consistent at everything but slams. Consistent, yes. Consistent. And good I, at slams, too. He made a ton of semis and finals before he actually won one. Sure, but he was losing rather repeatedly to the guys that, like, now, not guys, but at least, like, in terms of, like, a Federer, like, uh, somebody who, who now Banny was able to kind of knock off at two slams to, and, and I don't know, at the, at the time, I just really, I mean, even though, like, obviously Andy's, you know, got the better record and things, but just viscerally when I watch their games, I mean, doesn't, how much of it goes into what you were saying before about Dementiva, though, Ben? Like, about how how much do you give somebody extra points if they, like, totally maximize their potential and didn't break through? Or somebody who, like, underachieved but had the talent yeah, and, and didn't think, break through? How do I, you kind of handicap that? I think my vote for this discussion goes to Dementiva. And obviously, it's a discussion that can be had separately, segregated, men, best man never to win, best woman never to win. In which case, I probably would land on Nalbandian as well. I'm guessing for the men. But for Dementiva, she made her first Grand Slam semifinal in 2000 at the U.S. Open and also won Olympic silver medal that same year. And then Dementiva made her last Grand Slam semifinal in 2010 at the French Open. And she made semis at all four Grand Slams. She was very well-rounded on that front, had a long career of being a consistent, relevant player in the top of the game. She had a great record against Serena, which I think counts for a lot. She was never daunted by the big players. You can never count her out of a given match, especially at smaller tournaments. I admit, winning Olympic gold for her was huge. Nabandian, I guess, won the year-end championships. is a little bit of a rough equivalency there in terms of prestige of the tournaments or difficulty of winning the tournaments. Yeah, I mean, I think those are my two. And Nabandian just had so many valleys that I count against him, or eras of irrelevance or lack of effort. In a similar sort of way of when I assess like a Kuznetsova legacy, I think you have to take the good with the bad sometimes, and I think the bad cancels out more of Nalbandian's good than it does for Dementiva. And some, looking at someone like Marcelo Rios, who's also in the conversation fairly, because he's one of the very few, if not the only, I think, slamless ATP number one. Rios really had a very short period of being really at the top of the game. He, looking at his stats now, he made the in 1998, he made the Australia final, and then won Indian Wells, Miami, and Rome. And, that, and then... That accounts for most of his big results by far, just that 198 year. And I appreciate when you're talking about best to never win one. If Rios is only really peaking during an era where there are a couple slams played, is he really the best? Or is it someone like Dementia who was fairly in the mix for quite a few years? Or Nalbandian, who had literally like dozens of grand slams they could have conceivably won? Yeah, I mean, Rios to me is a little bit more analogous to a Safina. Yeah, I agree. Right. So that doesn't count to me. I mean, I, you know, I I find I, I think it's interesting because I think I find myself kind of sitting here thinking like, well, what are we talking about in terms of when we say the best? Yeah. Right. I mean, I hate to be all, you know, semantics. Cause, cause I, 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 think, I think Safina is one, a player who you could fairly say maybe 
And obviously, she was a huge overachiever in her overall results. But you can probably say she should have won a Grand Slam. She should have won the French Open that year against Sveta. Yeah. She really should have. And she's maybe, she the, she's maybe the most the player who sort of blew the most chances to win a Grand Slam and never won one in terms of getting deep in slams and really playing three very poor Grand Slam finals. You think um, more than more than more than Nalbandian? Nalbandian only made one final. I don't. I know, but like I don't think kind of, I don't think of him choking in late stages of slams. I can't think of that many. Didn't he? That didn't he? Didn't he completely choke that two thousand and three? Yeah. Rod, yeah, Roddick. Uh, that's just one, and he had match points against Roddick in the O three. He was up in semi. I don't know. I think Roddick was like serving. That was a close match, but it wasn't. I don't remember being a choke. I mean, he, he's a bit of a choker. And I just remember so many times, like there were moments where whether it was deep, you know, from the quarterfinal stage or semifinal stage that that he just kind of didn't bring it. Like he just, he, 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 he fell apart in the middle or the mo- moment got to him or he definitely was a choker. Or something. He, he was a choker. Choke. I remember last year at Indian Wells, him choking really badly against Rafa. Yep. I believe. For the second time, because he choked really badly against Rafa in 2009 at Indian Wells, yeah. which was a hilarious choke. <laughs> um, I only remember because I was there until two o'clock in the morning when that match finally ended. But he choked bad against Isner in Australia last year as well. And yeah, he was not. This is maybe more late career choking woes, the same way we talked about with Leighton Hewitt a little bit. I don't know if it was always Malbana's reputation per se, but yeah, late on, he was never a surefire closer at all. But yeah, yeah, I think I think my when I think of best to never win a slam. I think of it as being like the best overall career, never to win the slam, mm. which is why I skew more towards the Dementiavas and, and then Albanians who had, a, who had a long established period of being right there and never getting through more than like, more like Safina who had like a two year window where she could have won one. Sure, sure, sure. But I mean, I think that I see it slightly different. When I look at it, I see it slightly differently, which is that I kind of look more abstractly at a player's just talent, like t- their tools who they were as a player and, okay. and what they kind of brought to the table. And that's why, like, I just totally side with Nalby, like that's just, acro- yeah. you know, across the board. And and I think that that goes a little bit into why I would say that even before Andy won the open, that I still put Nalby ahead of him because I think on pure, I agree with just that. gifts. Nalby was Nalbandian just, is a more talented player than yeah. Andy. He really is. He's probably a more talented player or an equally talented player with Djokovic. Even I think you could say, yeah, um, it's inter- yeah. I mean, he really is in terms of if, if these two guys are at their best at the same time, you know, in their peak forms, who do you pick? It's yeah. tough. It's tough. Definitely, I think, not bailing over Murray. I totally agree with that. As far as the other ones go, a little trickier with Djokovic, probably fairly even. Yeah, no, it's, it's a good discussion. And uh, we'd be curious for your votes as well. If you're a Miloslav Machir diehard and want to argue that. I had I had said this on Twitter when I heard he was retiring and said, like, oh, who's the best ever? And someone was like, oh, it's Santoro. <laughs> it's not Fabrice Aww. Santoro, you guys. Fabrice Santoro was a cool dude, tennis-wise. Very cool game, but no, I don't think you're the best to win, never win a slam when you only made one slam quarter. I don't think I can back that. I would agree. So now it's time for our fan favorite segment, Take a Number, where we use a random number generator to pick a number between 1 and 100 and talk about the player who corresponds to that number on both the ATP and WTA rankings from this week. You ready to go, Courtney? I'm always ready to go. So here we go, hitting the random number generator button. 1 in 100, our result is do-do-do. <gasps> you guys, the number we got from 1 to 100 is 1. No, yay! We can finally talk about relevant people. This is like the first time we've ever hit a single-digit number. Yeah. I think ever. Not just number one, but whoa. I want to like screen cap that. That's crazy. We got number one. Okay. I wasn't prepared for this. I know. I feel like, (laughs) I don't even even need to look at the rankings. I know who these people are. 
all that reading that I did about Karumi Nara right? down the drain. Right? Well, that will come in hand can be someday. Probably not really. <laughs> so, Courtney, tell us who is the number one on the WTA? The number one on the WTA is the general of her own army. <laughs> it is Serena's army. Serena is short for Serena because the number one player on the WTA's name is Serena Williams. Serena Williams. And on the men's side, her dance partner at this champion's ball of, of take a number is none other than the, I don't, he's not, I don't think the general of any army, but he's recently a, a United Nations speaker in his diplomatic role. And his name is Novak Djokovic. Number one, this could be different next week if he loses it in Beijing to Nadal or Shanghai. But for right exactly. now... It's Novak Djokovic at number one for, I believe, over 100 weeks. So let's start with, how do we even start talking about these people? I know. Let's start talking about Novak, I guess. I feel like there's less on Novak. Courtney, what do you, what do you make of Novak Djokovic? What do I make of Novak Djokovic? Such a loaded question. I feel like I need to like sit down and like craft a personal statement. Right? Like, I feel like first thing comes to mind when you think of Novak Djokovic. The outsider, the guy who kind of, at least for me, made tennis interesting again. Um, I know that that's, oh, that's an overstatement, but I'm just, you know, like I said, I'm just speaking speaking what's on my mind. But yeah, like the guy who came in and broke up the, the duopoly at the top between Roger and Rafa, a duopoly that has been tremendous for the sport. And obviously that's reflected in, in kind of how, you know, the fandoms are, are pretty entrenched between those two that, you know, and they really drive the discussion or have in the past driven the discussion yeah. about tennis just in general. But when Novak kind of had his, his breakout in 2007 and 2008, and then just his ridiculous season in, in 2011 and his ability to kind of carry that through, it's been impressive. And, and I just feel like in so many ways, he's so underrated. I feel like people don't really recognize or take the time to recognize how good he is. Yeah, like how good he is and just statistically how amazing his career has been. And it's not even close to being done. Totally agree with that. I think that he, one of his most impressive things is he's so good on every surface. Obviously, 2011 was his crowning year where he barely lost at all. Started had a huge winning streak to start the year. I think of 43 wins or 30 something wins. I'm not really sure what the final number was. It was, was 40 he, something. 40 some 43. I want to say 42, 43, somewhere in there. And Djokovic, yeah, he just plays this sort of style that no one had really seen before, where it's this, uh, I guess it's officially like a counterpuncher, maybe you call it, but it's so movement-based, defense and offense at the same time. He really has changed the way the game is played, and he's thrived in this sort of slower ball era and made it his own. His baseline tennis, he has perfected it in a way that I guess Agassi did as well, too. But Agassi, I don't think, ever quite did it the same way that Djokovic did with such speed and with such consistency. Agassi was more of a power player. Djokovic is just a complete athlete and just sort of the way he's flexible and moves and bends and stuff. We've never seen anything like in the sport. I don't know if we ever will again. And it's uh, like you said, I do think he's underrated because he's in an era where he's really still in the shadow of Nadal and Federer in yeah. a lot of ways. And he doesn't have the narrative of like underdog that Andy Murray gets even. He's sort of right. just kind of lost in between there. And I think having him have some weird consonants at the beginning of his name, honestly, has not done him favors to the general public in terms of being introduced. Well, and also some of his, yeah, and his PR issues at the beginning of his career. You know, I think people, tennis, unfortunately, right foot, yeah. yeah, I think, unfortunately, tennis 
fans or commentators or whatever are are you know they're not they're not they're yeah they're petty and they're not willing to forget things and so you know it doesn't there isn't you know a day that goes by that that like if I write an article on Djokovic that in the comments people are bringing up oh you know remember how you used to retire all the time and that guy's like totally disingenuous and you know things like that that really kind of come from a place of some of his behavior earlier in his career yeah and right now he conducts himself so well on court. Mm-hmm. In terms of sportsmanship during matches, I think he is really near the top in terms of being pretty much flawless with that. And fan interaction, when you see him at tournaments with fans and stuff, or even leaving the court signing autographs, which is more on camera and sort of a little bit easier to be cynical about. But when he's like around the grounds of tournaments with fans, I've never heard anything but good things about him recently. Exactly. And he he's really is, good with that. He is a pure entertainer. Yeah. And he plays the sport understanding that he's there to entertain a crowd. And whereas I feel like maybe like a a Roger or a Rafa or some of the other guys in the top 10 feel like the way that they entertain the crowd is to play awesome tennis. Yeah, Rafa definitely feels that way. Rafa, I think, definitely feels that way. But I feel like with, with Novak and I would say Del Potro and I would say maybe Sanga... Like those are the three guys in the top ten. Well, yes, but I was saying going to say top ten. Yeah, sure. Who? uh, Because you have to win. I mean, like if you're not winning, it just then you're just flying around and falling down all the time, basically. Gael Monfils. But yeah, like those three guys, Djokovic, uh, Del Potro, and Sanga, are the guys that you really get the sense that they want to put on a show and they want to get the crowd into it and and play awesome tennis as well and win as well. But it's this little extra element that really make them, to me, like dynamic and exciting players. Like I look forward. They are players that I never take my eyes off of during a match. Totally agree. And they and they the kind of players who, if they're put in a night session against a flunky of some sort, you know if you go and watch them, you're not going to feel like you really didn't get much out of it. I remember Djokovic absolutely killing Carlos Berloque <laughs> the U.S. Open a couple of years ago. In the totally second, entertaining second round, match. I believe, and he made it really entertaining. And Berlok was trying, Berlok played a little part of that, but mostly it was Djokovic, like, honestly keeping Berlok in some of the points more than he needed to, just making it a really good showmanship, where if you put, like, a Federer or an Adal in there, or a Murray, definitely Murray, they would have just been more steamroller and not been as much for the crowd. So that's a huge plus that Djokovic has, that Del Potro, like you said, has it too. Del Potro, I think, is just as good a showman as Djokovic, if not better, mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. He's really underrated on that front. I um, agree. But yeah, Djokovic, totally dominates that category and with fans like you see in Indian Wells and stuff he's always taking a lot of time and clearly thinks that's important and putting a lot of real effort into it that doesn't feel like it's a chore you know all players have different styles of that but I think Djokovic at least recently has has impressed me with that when I've when I've seen him there yeah and I just think that like in a lot of ways that yeah, I mean, the main thing that I just think of, like, when it comes to Novak is he's kind of the Rodney Dangerfield of, of men's tennis. Like, no matter what he does, he's just never going to get, like, the respect that he deserves, I feel like. It doesn't matter how many titles he wins, how well he conducts himself, how many times he beats Roger or Rafa or Andy or, you know, like, how many weeks he holds the number one ranking. It's just he just doesn't capture the, the public public's imagination. And I don't. And, and I think a lot of it has to do with just Roger Rafa. People are just going to be fans of one of those two guys. But they took the spot. Yeah. But uh, it's just I just think it's really unfair to him because what he does and the way that he is and how he represents the sport and plays the game like these days, you could not ask for a better number one. I pretty much agree with that. I do think that he's had in, this, in terms of not to keep it all, you know, just gushing of about, about him. I do think that he's had disappointing results recently. Some underperforming in some big matches. I mean, like, oh, for sure. About after the U.S. Open. He's only six and six in Grand Slam finals now, which is not a record befitting a number one. 
or even like an all-time legend, especially at Wimbledon this year. I thought his finals performance was fairly flat against Murray. Obviously, very tough circumstance to play in there. Murray and history and the crowd all against you. Yeah, and the U.S. Open final this year as well, and the U.S. Open last year against Murray, just sort of not always being able to push himself past that recently. And obviously, he's already won six Grand Slams. It's hard to knock the guy too much, but we're just splitting hairs here, nitpicking. Yeah, I think that Pete Bodo had actually, he wrote a thing on Novak either last weekend or the weekend before. And the title of the post was called The Greatest Worst Year. Yeah. And I think that that just really kind of sums, I thought that it was a really smart kind of title. I mean, I think that really sums up Novak's 2013. Yeah. Of just like, how can you make like the finals of three slams, make the semis of the French where you lose to the greatest clay quarter of all time? In five. In five, you're number one the entire year. Maybe you won't finish it that way, but you are for the entire year. And yet, like, walk everybody, and even he will acknowledge that it's been a disappointment. Yeah. Like, like that doesn't make sense that this guy who, like, I just really don't think that people really kind of appreciate, like, how good he is. At the same time, people, the same people who are, like, kind of don't appreciate how good he is, are at the same time being like, oh, and also your year kind of sucked. Yeah, no, I agree. No, he's been amazing. Compare that with Azarenka. I mean, yeah. Azarenka started the year number one as well. Lost it fairly quickly in February to Serena. Hasn't gotten it back since. We assume that Djokovic is probably going to finish the year number two if Nadal stays healthy and plays Beijing, Shanghai, Paris. Maybe not even Paris. And then London. Uh, Nadal will most likely finish the year number one and Djokovic number two. But I think the expectations for him are just very high. Or he, you know, can't get any respect. Is totally right. It's, it's hard to please people. To win, to make it a good year, I think Djokovic would have had to have won two slams. He won a slam last year and was number one. But people still wanted to call Andy Murray the player of the year. I right. mean, it's just like the guy just can't ever get it done. Stop. And in that way, it kind of, I mean, in, in that way, it does kind of make him not a tragic figure because I'm not going to like cry myself to sleep over a guy who made three slams, slam finals and was number one and just got engaged to a super hot, awesome chick mm-hmm. and, you know, has a pretty good life. Pretty good life. But, you know, it does kind of like feed into kind of the tragic nature or storyline of Novak Djokovic. that and Serbia as a whole. And Serbia as a whole, I mean, kind of the Serbian kind of ethos and, and mentality of just kind of like, ugh, like, never, we're never good enough. We can never, like, please everyone. And everyone's always attacking us no matter what we do and how good we are and blah, 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 blah. And he's kind of in a perfect position to kind of wear that mask, I suppose. I mean, two other things about Djokovic before we move on. What do you make of sort of his sort of evolution as a, as a statesman or ambassador for the game? Because he wasn't, we alluded to this before, about him being fault of her previous sins, but he wasn't always the way he is now. He used to retire and take medical timeouts a lot. Andy Roddick famously mocked him for saying he had bird flu and SARS and stuff at the U.S. Open and the crowd. He really turned on the crowd and vice versa later that year at the U.S. Open, and it got pretty ugly. He also did a lot of impressions early on, which I personally always thought were pretty funny, but robbed a lot of people, namely at all the wrong way but what do you make of how he's transformed himself and is it all for the better that he's become this very statesmanly diplomatic in some ways sanitized model of like a perfect player you know i think that the needle has probably been flipped too far the other way overcorrection a little bit yeah overcorrection i mean obviously you know you don't want it for kind of the image of the sport and i guess the way people want tennis to kind of be perceived which there's an argument to be had about whether or not it should be this way but people want it to be seen as like the gentleman's sport and how like oh look at roger and rafa and oh they're just so like classy and whatever okay you know like let's not stop and recognize like how popular tennis was when nastasi and connors and macaro and borg and we're all doing their whole thing like More there popular, was yeah exactly at least in the states it was for okay. damn sure 
So there is an argument to be made, and I've made this argument about Azarenka, that embrace your bitch. <laughs> it's okay. Yeah. Like, you know, like, like, because I feel like she's also kind of maturing a lot as well. And a lot of what we need to stop and realize is that, like, when Novak was being kind of the prickly, quote unquote, jerk that people perceived him to be back in like 06, 07, like arrogant, cocky. Like, how old was the kid? Like, 18, 19? Yeah, he was like, in, in 06, 07, he would have been 19, 20, yeah. Okay. You name me an 18 or 19 year old guy who's like a classy dude who isn't kind of a jerk. Very rare, especially one who's touring, you know, a professional tennis player touring without his parents, making millions of dollars. Like he kind of, yeah, it's going to be that way. And then they mature. They they learn that that maybe that's not going to be the right way. It doesn't mean that they're disingenuous. Ernest Golbus thinks so. Ernest Golbus does think so. Ernest Golbus has some growing up to do as well. (laughs) Fair point. So, you know, but, you know, there's a happy medium. But anyways, but I think that there is kind of a part of me that wants Novak to kind of like be, go back to his prickly self, to be the guy that's kind of like poking, you know, the other guys like in the press room. Take the Soderling spot on that front. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I would kind of like that to happen. That might cost him some dollars and maybe it wouldn't put tennis in the greatest light depending on who you talk to. It cost him some fans, but it might get him some some new respect or some add some intrigue to it. I don't know. Because it does yeah. it does feel like with him, it's it's an effort right now, you know? You have a sense with him, obviously we talk about how he's doing everything right and presenting this great image and whatever, but it's also calculated in a way that I totally respect. I mean, obviously correcting even if it's an overcorrection, some correction was in order, it could be said. Mm-hmm. And he did that. And he, if he's doing it too well, it's kind of sort of a little bit of a, a picky thing for us to fault him for. Right. Like, oh, you're too you're too classy. <laughs> so <laughs> the other thing I wanted to bring up with that Djokovic that I think of when I think of him is sort of his background, namely how his background travels to tournaments with him now, just namely his parents <laughs> and the Serbian fans that are in the stands constantly these tournaments. And are really more noticeable than any other nationality of fans when you're somewhere like Cincinnati or something, which is generally a very fairly um, white bread American crowd, and they don't have pockets of loud Serbians. Courtney, what do you make of sort of how he represents Serbia, I guess, and how his parents and their big face T-shirts and "Long Live the King" whatevers um, have impacted Djokovic's presence on the tour and what that's all brought to it? You know, I mean, I think so many of for Novak Djokovic I think you know the sins of the father are constantly held against him mm-hmm. you know I, I've, I've talked to people who just absolutely can't stand Djokovic and oftentimes it's because they're either Rafa or Federer fans and really if they were to stop and admit it like they're just jealous yeah. Or... They're just, yeah they're just hate the guy who beats their favorite yeah. like just admit that that's totally a legit reason to not like another player it's okay but don't try and like you know wrap it in this kind of like philosophical oh i just don't like the, his game i'm like come on you don't like him because he beats your guy but so many of them are like oh is why don't you like Djokovic? oh his parents are absolutely classless and okay that's not anything about him that's his parents if if you know if every if every single one of us had to deal with like you know the shadow of, of some of the stupider things that our parents have ever done in their lives like i think we'd all be in pretty bad straits if we all, all had to bring our parents with us everywhere we went and they were like on camera constantly odds are through no fault of their own mom and dad our parents wound up annoying some people it would yeah. happen it would happen because they love their son and they, especially especially early on in his career, like cheered him on the same way that like I've seen parents cheer on their kids at soccer games. Yep. 
you know, or or baseball games, you know, getting up against the fence and, you know, yelling and, and getting excited. And a lot of that comes out of just like, that's how they express it. And it's just because it didn't fit into kind of what was expected within tennis, yeah. whatever, you know, in the culture of the sport. I think they got, a, I don't know, I, I think they kind of got a bad rap. I always really liked Surgeon and Deanna. I, re- I never really minded their popping off and saying crazy things because again, I kind of liked it. I find their popping off and the things they say a lot of times less aggravating than the things Tony Nadal says. I totally agree. <laughs> Tony Nadal, I think, is in terms of family members talking. Right now, he's kind of out of control with some of the things he says. But I don't yeah. want him to stop saying because it, it makes for a good cop. No, I mean, that's the thing. Like, I don't really feel like I'm complaining because I want these things to stop. I'm just complaining as though I'm watching, like, a TV show that's already been scripted. Right. Right? Like, you're just like, oh, man, like, this character sucks. That's how you do engage with the sport in a lot of ways, especially before both of us, because Djokovic was around in the sport before both of us got into the media side of things fully. And so we engage with him as mostly a person on TV to begin with. And that's when you make those sort of yeah. judgments about him. Anything else on Novak? No, I think that's a pretty good discussion of Novak. I mean, on the whole, I think he does a great job. And I just wish that people would, like, stop the hate and, like, respect that he does a pretty damn good job. Stop and think know? about what he's done. Yeah. Don't take him for granted, I guess, basically. Yeah, it doesn't mean you have to be a fan, but, like, respect the guy's pretty freaking good at tennis if you're serving you already do yes next of his uh counterpart on the women's side is serena williams this like sort of changed the shape of this show i feel like getting these two is big big seriously big game changer courtney what do you make of serena williams now that is a loaded <laughs> question um serena williams uh Hold on, let me think for a second to organize my this thoughts. This is seriously, like, this is hard. This is much harder than getting 87 or something. It really is, because there's so much. More than anybody in the game, I think there's more about Serena than anybody else. I think she has, I think she has the well, longest dossier, or the, the thickest dossier of anybody in the sport. <laughs> Wait, what talk, are you I'm talking about? <laughs> and by dossier, of course, I mean folder. Ass. Um... <laughs> Okay. Start wherever you want. You don't have to be a perfect start. Just start wherever you Yeah, no, with Serena, I just, I mean, I know all of the numbers say that we can't say that she's like the greatest of all time, but I'm kind of inclined to say that she's the greatest of all time. I completely agree. So, you know, that's kind of where it comes down for me with Serena. Like, I know, like, obviously, like, it's really difficult to say that when blah, 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 you know, like, there are three, I guess, pretty good arguments to be made for, not three i would say there's two good arguments to be made for two women ahead of her in the goat debate so that would be steffi graf obviously and martina navratilova i don't really count sorry the margaret court like slam tally all australia mostly i mean 13 australia yeah if you're winning the aussie if you're winning 13 australian opens in an era when no one played the australian open no i mean i'm sorry I, i don't really I don't. I hate attaching asterisks, but there's an asterisk. So yeah, I mean, there's arguments to be made for Steffi and Martina, and I totally understand them. And I would never tell anybody that they were stupid for saying that Steffi or Martina were the greatest of all time. But for me, when you look at a player, and I think that what she's done over the last two years since her comeback have really, I think, solidified this. I think that the argument was so much harder to make before her injury and illness. But since she's come back and recommitted to herself to the sport in the way that she has and seems like nothing's stopping her, like she's just playing in a way that you just she's just the best and she's the best that I've ever seen. And I think you have to think about it a little bit the way we talked about the Nalbandian debate before. I mean, I think Serena at her peak 
it's better than anyone else at their peak ever in history, even, you know, accounting for technology, whatever. I mean, technology and, what she yeah. did at the London Olympics was insane. <laughs> that was an insane tournament yeah. she put together right there. It's the best in the world at a really important tournament. And she just killed it. And she hasn't always, you know, routed slams that way. She's won some ugly slams. She's played her way into form, quote unquote, at a bunch of slams. Um, but that one was just like, yeah, that was the one where I was like really sat back and was like, you know what, Serena, she's, yeah, she's the best. Yeah, there's no, there's no kind of doubt. There's no doubt in my mind about that. And I think that, you know, when you add kind of the, you know, additional layers of her career. So the fact that, you know, two African-American kids from Compton growing up on playing on effectively self-taught by their father, playing on cracked public courts, all that to, to kind of come in and change the way that the women's game is played. And to do this from, you know, the time that they're like 16, 17 years old until what, she's mm-hmm. like 32 now and still dominate at this age, still be the best player in the game at 32 years old. And that doesn't seem to be, unless there's a catastrophic injury, going to be changing anytime soon i mean that i I really feel i mean how many more years do you think she has peak peak i think she has all of 2014 peak and then 2015 i mean i think when she starts to slip it might come quickly just because she is getting up there in years into her mid-30s at this point getting close to mid-30s anyway but i think that absolutely 2014 i still expect her to be disappointed with less than two slams and um, Mm -hmm. okay with two happy with three very happy with four I mean, she's graded on an absurd curve. <laughs> yeah. Twenty and then twenty fifteen on, I think she's in a little bit more of a gravy phase where she's still an unbelievably dangerous, competent player, but probably not the same week in, week out juggernaut she's become over the last uh, eighteen months or so. Do you think that she's gonna catch? Do you think she's gonna catch the the Steffi's the record? The record? Uh, Steffi's record yeah. twenty two. Serena is at seventeen now. Seventeen. I'll say no. I don't think she will. It's close. It's I'm gonna, close. It's close. I think she'll break. Ooh, I think she'll probably get 20. Oh, that's, that sounds low now that I think about it. Uh, I think she'll more? get 21. I'll put it, I'll think she'll get... Four, four more over so. the next two years? That's what I'll... I mean, that's, that's, and again, that's not like sliding three. I mean, no one's like, oh, you hate her, you know. No, that's still a thing. You just win four more slams. The next is like three. No, Ben, the rule is this, that if you talk about Serena Williams and you do not acknowledge her as being the best person to ever walk the face of the earth, you're a hater and you're ugly on the Unattractive inside. Unattractive inside. Don't look away. Yes. These are these these are the rules in discussion in discussing Serena. So there's so many different roads that diverge talking about Serena. But let's talk about you. You sort of alluded to that. <laughs> let's talk about Serena. What her what her haters do point to, which is mostly those. And I still you still get this all the time. Same thing with Djokovic. Oh, his old behavior. Serena, you will absolutely get you know Chino, oh nine comments and Azdraki eleven comments about her old behavior what do you make of that and how it sort of shapes or reflects on who she is and her legacy and the sport and how people should look at her are those things relevant of course they're relevant i mean you know i mean i think that it's impossible to say that they're not i mean these are major meltdowns in slam in you know deep into slam they were ugly i mean not the second one i mean the (laughs) second second one was more funny than anything else i say hilarious freaking hilarious the first one was not funny (laughs) like no the first one was not funny the first one was was ugly i mean it was just wasn't a good scene and anyone who wants to say that it it was i just really take it not was but like oh it wasn't that big of a deal i really take issue with i mean you can't brandish your racket at a lines person (laughs) 
you can't really even yell at them. They're going to shove a ball down their fucking throat. Definitely can't no. throat, threaten them. I, I don't really buy this whole idea of like, oh, it wasn't that big of a deal. I mean, it was a big deal and it is going to be held against her. I mean, it'll be kind of a, a negative mark. But I think that the way that she's conducted herself ever since then, talk about a player who at times it feels like she's yeah. overcompensating in a major way in press, you know, saying the right things and taking the high road and, you know, gone are kind of the days of her like snipping about Martina Hingis, you know, not having a formal education or, you know, sarcastically congratulating Dinara Safina for winning Madrid and Rome and Rome. Sorry. Didn't mean to slight you. Dinara didn't take, take Rome away from you. But yeah, I mean, I think those days are gone and I think that she's, she's, she's done her best to kind of be a good States person. Yeah for the sport and, and to really make sure that her legacy kind of gets cleaned up over the course of the next, you know, the, the, the last few years of her career, which is, you know, I don't, uh, I don't begrudge her that at all. Interesting, cause I think with her changing and I'm not sure which direction it started first, but we, I don't think we talked about it too much. Maybe we did when the U S open show happened. I'm not, I can't remember when Martina Hingis did press at the U S open this year. And it was just really kind of odd and sort of seemed on edge and uneasy during that whole time. And, you know, a bit combative and stuff. A lot of it seemed, one of the reads on that press conference that people had, I forget exactly who had this read, uh, who originally, but it was just like, that's how things were in her day, you know? In her day, things were much less federized, much less um, mm-hmm. diplomatic, and much less sanitized and clean. It was just much more raw, and Serena, I guess, has gone that road. I mean, she still has press conferences where she can be flat and dismissive. Those still happen, sometimes unpredictably, where she'll just be clearly not having it, but she won't say, like bitchy things about other players now <laughs> she just yeah, hey, one one bitchy moment i can remember having recently it was randomly about and it was just sort of subtle it wouldn't have shown up in print that well but it was about when she was at fed cup against belarus and she was playing and she had just beaten a junk baller uh yakimova <laughs> she was like the tennis she was playing was shocking i was i was shocked <laughs> it, was, it was so funny um, that's the only that's the only thing i can remember <laughs> but she just said like sort of like rolling her eyes at herself like it was shocking tennis. <laughs> um, yeah, so it was that was pretty great. But you know, same thing with Djokovic. Um, you understand why they put on their game face and play there and play it straight laced and straight and narrow and trying to cause too many kerfuffles. Uh, which obviously Serena had a clear lapse in that in the Rolling Stone article this year, which she clearly let her guard down and was uh, and the writer there capitalized on that. But yeah, other than that, and you saw how much of a hurricane in a teacup that caused so yeah you yeah. totally understand what she's done and you know i when, when i talk to serena now or just see her play or see her impress you just get the sense that like and this goes to the enormity of having her come up and take a number is that she's just been through so much like like the things that she has gone through in her life her whole story is exhausting that is a yeah. long if she ever did like a tell-all blow-by-blow detailed book it would be like one of the longest books ever written a lot of stuff and it would be chock full. There would no, be no filler. Nothing. I mean, if, if she really wanted to go the full Agassi open route, it could be like the best book ever written. Oh, seriously. I mean, oh if my she gosh, did what, like yeah. full, like, let's talk about everything. Let's talk about, start with the uh, Compton and all that stuff. Start with Brett Ratner. Yeah, Brett Ratner. No, I was, was going to go there. <laughs> Brett Ratner, LeVar Arrington, Patrick now, Common, Common. sure, Drake, who, and, and Justine Ennen. I would love to hear her write for two chapters about Justine Ennen. That She never talks about now, and it's just sort of like, Five foot five elephant in the room a little bit with Justine there. Talk about Hingis, talk about, you know, her parents and Venus and Tor and you know, the role of Indian Wells and race and the, the locker, locker room, room and Sharapova and Sharapova making more money than her. And she think about that. I don't know. I mean, all the other 
great. It'd be fascinating. I just want to know. And I would want to know because it's not like these questions haven't been right. put to her before. These are questions that come up, like, you know, sometimes in, in press conferences or one-on-ones. But she's just not, now that she's still playing, she's not really willing to talk about this stuff honestly. You know, it does her no good. So, Serena, seriously, like, do it. If you're going to do, like, you know, your autobiography, do it right and, like, bust it open. She already did one, which came out right after the U.S. Open. She did. She did. Um, in 20, 2009, which after the footfall was ironically called On the Line. Yeah, yes. It was, uh, there was good stuff on Indian Wells, I think. I read that book. I'm trying to remember right when it came out. Otherwise, it was relatively clean. It never mentioned Justine like more than once. And you got to talk about Justine if you're writing mm-hmm. about Serena. That is like her arch nemesis right. in a big way. For sure. And you got to talk about your dad and your new little brother. I mean, there's just, there's, there's so, so much. much. There's so much. You know, the death yeah. of her sister, the, you know, it's. And you saw like little glimpses of it in that the Serena yeah. Venus documentary, you know, like I think when you and I talked about initially when we kind of did our review of it about, you know, like the, her like half brothers and sisters randomly showing up to like Wimbledon and her being like, yeah, who the heck was <laughs> and that? She, and she controls the finances <laughs> you know? of the family a lot where she says to sign off on her parents' mm-hmm. uh, expenditures and stuff. And just, mm-hmm. there's just... And the insight into what she thinks of like, what she thinks the other players and, think of her. Yeah, right. When the treadmill scene, which was the best scene in the movie with Sasha and talking about Azarenka and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, those are, those are great. And I just hope, if you're listening, Serena, I put a small chance that you are, um, you never know. Uh, Serena made it mm-hmm. over an hour into this episode. Serena, I hope that someday you sit down and, and write the story fully because there's just so much there, and uh, it's uh, it yes. would be great to uh, to see it all in one place and do it justice one day and to really and, and to really do your story justice because because the story is like we said it's unbelievable. There's so much, so much. There. And yeah, and and, and to give her the yeah both of them, but like to give each of them an opportunity to take control of the story and the narrative, but hopefully to do it in an honest way and not in a like, okay, now I have control over my narrative. I'm going to like make everything all shiny and perfect and clean up yeah. my legacy in, in how I put things together. But actually, you know, cause, but like to actually be like, all right, warts and all, this is everything. This is my story. And I feel like that would be so like inspirational and and it would just mean more to like not just the tennis community because these are like oh like hugely pop idols. these are world superstars I mean, that have transcended not only tennis but also sports right so for for them to open up and to really tell the story the right way but to be honest like brutally honest about it all but to be honest i mean that would just that would be an absolute game changer for sure. I mean, Agassiz's Open was a game changer when it came to, like, sports biographies, I feel like. But, like, yeah, I think you're totally right. Like, both Serena and Venus could absolutely change the game again. What, what do you think comes for Serena after her playing days are over? What does Serena, the post-player, do with her life? I mean, is she going to be on more Law & Order episodes, selling HSN stuff, you know, being away from tennis? Or is she going to be, like, I don't know, can you imagine, like, Serena the Fed Cup captain or something? What is, um, oh I can imagine God. Venus the Fed Cup captain. Serena, not so much, but what, what do you think Serena does? What do you, how do you, where do you see her in, in 20 years? What is, what does 50 year old Serena look like? I genuinely have no idea. But then again, like, I can't, I can't even imagine what Maria would do oh, I can imagine after Maria. tennis. Maria, I can see. What do you, Maria what do you think is, she's doing? Is remaining like, very tall and stately and, <laughs> and just sort of being, you know, a general person who floats around being, you know, glamorous and endorsing. Like a socialite, like a, like a fancy social, like a socialite yeah, with actual cachet as opposed to like, 
a vapid socialite that has like why are you here right right i see her being yeah i see her being like a uh, a figure who shows up to fashion shows and it's just sort of generally around doing little things being you know i don't know i just see i see her more easily than that than i see serena serena i don't see being i don't know I, I i'm very curious to see what serena will be like in 20 years Maybe she'll throw, she'll be like just throwing herself into Anaris, and that's gonna be Maybe the thing. Maybe Anaris is coming back. Anaris is coming back, or like franchising nail salons. One other thing that just popped into my head in terms of looking at the legacy of uh, greatest of all time, I think Serena's doubles wins are also a big plus for her over Graf. It's very true. Just another thought popped into my head. Well, and, and also Serena doesn't have the asterisk that Graf constantly has because of Celis. Which I think is a semi-fair asterisk. I mean, I think the era for Graf was really pretty crappy. Yeah. Especially, and Capriati also disappeared during that same time, too. Not That's not as the same sort of asterisk, but, you know, it's a factor. Well, that was number one. <laughs> Take a number. Nobody Chokovich and Serena Williams. And that will do it for us uh, on this show. I'm going a little longer than expected because of the unexpectedly low number. Thanks for listening, folks. We'll see you down the road next time. Well, we'll be traveling from pretty much here on out. Uh, so shows may be a little bit more erratic during the fall, but hopefully not. We'll do our best. And we'll see you next time. Bye, guys. Ciao. One is the loneliest number that you'll ever do. Since the number one Start back at one